Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. appreciate you you coming for uh, what I suspect will be uh, an important and and, um, uh, and, and challenging panel. Uh, my name is Joshua Mazervi. I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, welcome again, and welcome to all those uh, watching online. Um, Nigeria may be Africa's most consequential country, yet the security situation there is deeply discouraging. Uh, Boko Haram is gaining again after years of losses, and ISIS West Africa province has conquered significant territory and overrun Nigerian military bases just this year. Yet the violence in Nigeria's Middle Belt region has become bloodier even than that of Boko Haram. It is impossible to know the exact numbers, but thousands have been killed and many more displaced. Samfara State in the Northeast has seen a spike in violence, but Nigerian security service interventions have done little to halt. The reasons for all this violence are hotly contested, and we are not going to resolve that debate today. Suffice it to say, religious animosity, ethnic divisions, political rivalries, and a struggle for resources contribute to the violence, and in different proportions depending on the conflict. How large a role any one grievance play Plays varies from conflict to conflict, and perhaps even violent incident to violent incident. In many cases, it is likely a combination of all of these dangerous factors that drives the violence. What is beyond dispute, however, is that vulnerable people are suffering terribly. It is sometimes easy to forget the human side of these tragedies, which is a sad mistake. Today, we are going to hear from Nigerians who have witnessed and suffered from violence, though, of course, they do not represent all the wide variety of Nigerian victims. Their words will hopefully remind us of the human tragedy unfolding in Nigeria and prompt each of us to consider anew what we can, to do, what we can do to support Nigerians of all faiths, ethnicities, lifestyles, and social classes who are seeking peace. I want to thank the International Committee on Nigeria, which was instrumental in uh, bringing this panel together and did extraordinary work um, and, and continues to do extraordinary work in Nigeria on these issues. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks also to Save the Persecuted Christians for all of its help in organizing. Finally, uh, the Anglican Archbishop of Jos, His Excellency Benjamin Kwashi, is unable to join us and so will be replaced by Dr. Richard Akebe. Uh, immediately following the event, we'll have a light reception I hope you will be able to join us for. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Kyle Abs, Director of the International Committee on Nigeria, to introduce our first witnesses. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. 
Um, it's a privilege to, to share, a uh, privilege to, to, to partner with our, our friends from Nigeria and also Heritage. Um, I'm going to bring all of you up, so I'll just give you, I'll call your name and just come up, but you'll, you'll get a proper introduction from, from people when they come. So first off, from Kaduna State in Nigeria, we have Elhari Lawa Magaji, and she's accompanied by Mercy Nesamari. And then uh, we have from Benue State, Napoleon Adamu, or Napo, as I like to call him. And then from, uh, from Yobe, from the area, uh, Boko Haram uh, area, we have uh, Dr. Gloria Puldu. She is uh, a friend and a, fa- uh, and a supporter for uh, my next guest is Rebecca Sharibu who is the mother to Leah Sharibu. So, I'll introduce these two to my left, immediate left. Uh, Over a year ago, a year and a half ago, on February 19th, 2018, 110 girls were kidnapped uh, from Dapshi. Before that, you heard the stories of, of girls that were kidnapped in, in Chibok. You remember the bring back our girls and all that signage that went forward. These girls last year were, were released. 109 of them were released. Five of them perished on the way, but one girl was kept. Her name was Leah Sharibu, who was a, uh, happened to be a Christian. Um, and, and Rebecca will share that story. In Nigeria, she is a, a, considered a martyr. If you go to Nigeria, you'll, songs are written about her, uh, videos are produced, books are written. To many, she is to many Christians and Muslims, she is a, a, a hero because she stood with her with her faith. So please welcome uh, Rebecca as she shares a testimony. She'll be interpreted by Dr. Gloria. Uh, she'll speak the English. So thank you. I'm Rebecca Sheribu. I'm here standing here for pleading the government of U.S. to please help me. <laughs> okay. Please help me. I'll bring my daughter back. I need my daughter. <laughs> Um, we stand here with Rebecca Sharibu, the mother of Leah Sharibu, just like we had. Her daughter was abducted on the 19th of February, and she's still in captivity. And um, we had tried the best that we could to get the attention of our federal government and even the state government and the local governments to ensure that Leah is released. But up to today, Leah has not been released. She's still in captivity. October last year, we held a press conference calling on the federal government to please do their very best to ensure that Leah is released because we have never had any 
government official visit the parents to condone with them and to tell them anything concerning their daughter since when she was abducted alongside the other 110 girls. And um, after the conference, we were able to get uh, President Buhari speak to her on the phone because we got the Plateau State Governor to help us to call him. And they were able to, uh, he was able to speak to her and promise her that Leah Sharibu will be released soon because he is doing the very best to make sure that she is released. Because the other girls who are um, all Muslim girls were released. And the only reason why Leah was kept back was because she refused to renounce her faith. When she was told to renounce her faith and recite the Kalman Shahada, Kalman Shahada means the Islamic faith um, creed, and she refused to do that. That was the only reason that she was kept back. And so um, since October, when the president spoke to her, we have not heard anything from the government. Uh, after two weeks of, us, of the president speaking with her, we got the attention of the three ministers that he sent to Dabchi, which is the first official government people that came to see them in Dabchi. But after that one, we never heard anything again. So February 10th this year, 2019, we held another conference crying out that the president has promised that Leah will be released, but up till now we haven't seen Leah, and we have not heard anything from the government since that time. After that, nothing. We didn't hear anything. So many people have advocated in social media, TV, all over the world people have been calling, but nothing happened. Leah turned 16 years May 13th, and we also had a huge advocacy in Nigeria. Virtually all the states had schools and all other people coming out to ask. Most especially for us women, we focused on our first lady, Aisha Buhari, that she should please prevail and speak to her husband so that we'll be able to have our daughter released because she is a prisoner of conscience. She didn't do anything. But up till now, we did not get that attention. And that is why we are here. And what she said in the beginning is to plead with your government to please pressure our government because our government seems unable to secure her release. And we are pleading with you to please call on our government or to step in and do something. And I'm um, glad that we have gotten this opportunity to come and to just call on all of you. We know that President Trump can do something about it. Your administrators can do something about it. All of you seated here can do something about it. Leah is the only person that is still in captivity. Why is she in captivity? Just because she refused to renounce her faith. If we are talking about freedom of religion, then Leah should be freed. Whatever it, it takes, she should be released and she should be brought back home. Our government should be held responsible. 
Boko Haram has been raging all over the northeastern part. Women and girls are going through hell. And Leah, which is a common name now, is what we are using to standard. Please pressure our government. Help us. We are out here. She's crying, just wanting her daughter to be set free. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much, Rebecca. Thank you, Gloria. I'm Didi Lagasin. I'm the executive director of Save the Persecuted Christians, and we are so humbled to have these witnesses to violence from Nigeria today. Thank you. The next um, witnesses who will speak are uh, Alheri Bawa Magaji. She is the daughter of the Adara Wazirin, who is the current leader for the Adara chiefdom in Kaduna State, Nigeria. They are the tribe that was so viciously attacked in, uh, for multiple attacks in, uh, week, for weeks going on from mid-February through April of this year. They lost some 400 mostly women, children, elderly to uh, Fulani violence. And uh, I will let them tell you their story. We have Mercy Masmeri as well. She is the daughter of the Adara Development Association. Her her father is the president of that association. And uh, two years ago, Mercy was kidnapped by Fulani and held for a period of time as well. So, ladies, thank you so much for being here. You can start from, from there if you would like, if it's more comfortable. Come here. Hello, everybody. Um, just being here is answered prayers because after we were left hopeless, the only thing we could do at that point really was pray. And God raised an army in Didi, Kyle, I, Stephen. It's, it's, it's a miracle that we're here. So first of all, we want to thank you for this opportunity. My name is Alheri. I'm Adara from Kufana in Kajiru, local government of Kaduna State. As I stand here right now, I've been warned not to say a word because I might be killed. You know, it's, it's, you can't speak about it. If you speak about it, you're threatened, thrown in prison, harassed by the police. But I asked the person that called me, I said, what have I got to lose if I don't talk? My family is killed every day. My dad was locked up for over 100 days. My tribe is now extinct. So if I keep quiet, to what gain will that be? The people who die every day are human beings too. And if I have an opportunity to let the world know what's happening in my hometown, I will do anything to be able to save, even if it's one life. We have two-month-old babies, six-month-old babies, babies in the belly turned from their mother's wounds and slaughtered like animals, like chickens. So we're here today to beg the U.S. government, to beg everybody here for the world to hear our story. October of last year, our chief was kidnapped um, on the 19th of October, and then he was murdered on the 26th. He was kidnapped with his wife, but the wife wasn't feeling too well. And the Fulani herdsmen, when they kidnap you, they take you into the bush and you walk on foot. So if amongst you there's someone who is sick, they usually let the person go. So that's the only reason why the wife was let go. She wasn't feeling too fine. The other people paid a ransom 
but he was still murdered. And immediately he was murdered. My dad is the Waziri, so he holds the chiefdom when the chief is unavailable. So it was when the chief died that the elders in Adara land realized that the governor on the, May, on the 29th of May 2018 had signed that I and 90 5% other Adara Christians are now under a Muslim House of Fulani Emirate. And it was so ridiculous that it was already signed into law and nobody knew about it. For a governor to make that kind of law in the first place without the people of the land knowing about it is illegal and unjust. So the, the elders kept trying to get the attention of the government, but nobody would listen. So when they realized nobody was going to listen to them, they took the matter to court. And a week after the civil case started in court, my dad and eight other elders were arrested and thrown into prison for no reason. The reason the government gave was that they were the reasons why 66 Fulani were killed. The governor made that announcement on the 15th of February, 2019. And two days later, um, the elders were arrested. We all know why they were arrested. It wasn't because Fulani people were killed. And those Fulani people, he said, were killed till date. There's no evidence to that. The police commissioner of Kaduna State has a statement. It's on, social, it's, it's on the internet saying that the investigation into that particular crisis hasn't been concluded and he can't confirm or deny the number of people killed. The problem we have with the statement the governor made is that he said 66 Fulani were killed. On the 10th of February, 11 Adara people were killed. The government didn't say anything about it, even when the leaders of the community officially made a statement. There is nowhere, check on the internet, check everywhere. You will never see a statement from the state government saying Adara community was attacked or another person was killed. But if one Fulani person, any Fulani Muslim is killed, it makes headlines. The governor himself comes out to make news. And we're wondering, as Adara people, aren't we citizens of Kaduna State? that things like this will happen and nobody cares. And every time someone tries to speak about it, you're thrown in prison. So after the governor made that announcement, a lot of um, NGOs and civil societies went to Kajiru to try to um, give um, credibility to the story. And then the human rights chairman, the former human rights chairman of Nigeria as a whole, came out and said the story was false. Three weeks ago, that man was called to the police station on the orders of the governor. So imagine a human rights national chairman of Nigeria being called because he spoke about it, not to talk of we who live in the, the community. We are not allowed to say these things at all. Um, there are almost 13,000 IDPs from Adara alone. There are about 400 people, mostly women and children, who have been killed. I spoke to a woman whose limbs were cut off. She had four kids and was nine months pregnant. The Fulani herdsmen came to a Kajiru town in February, about 400 of them with AK-47s. They came at about 6.30 a.m. in the morning. And they spoke Adara. That's my language. They're Fulani herdsmen, but they spoke Adara. And they come in with war songs. They'll be singing songs. If I translate, it says, the owners of the land have come. It's time for people, for settlers to leave. And then they're hundreds. Where do you start from? Because we are hunters. Even if we have guns, they're Dane guns. So you find people running. They like when they come in and you start running and then they start shooting. Like, you know how you, 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 you like sheep running away. And then they find pleasure in doing that. Another thing they do is to cut limbs and 
cut open pregnant women and remove the babies and cut them. And they try their best for the woman not to die. For some reason, most of the women whose kids were killed or whose babies were removed from their tummies didn't die. So it's kind of like to come out and tell the story of the terror if we don't leave the land. And there is no Fulani IDP camp. There are no cases of anywhere where there are people attacked Fulani people. But the narrative from the government, they will tell you that they're reprisal attacks. But we keep asking, reprisal attacks from what? Adara must have attacked anybody for the Fulani to say they're retaliating. But there's no case like that. But every time the government gives a narrative, they will tell you it is between farmers and herdsmen. We are a sleeping community, sleeping at 6.30 in the morning. We are not organized. We don't have AK-47s. How is that a fight between farmers and Fulani herdsmen? And that's the narrative that everybody will tell you. You go to the government, talk to anybody, try to wade in to ask for help. They tell you it's not religious, but it is religious. It is religious. Right now, my, my, my tribe is non-existent legally. So part of the reason why I'm here is to try to get my land back. That's who I am. That's my identity. That, that, that's what who makes me, Alheri. My people are stranded. They're, they're literally sleeping under the skies, on the floor. No houses, no food, nothing. So it's not about relief materials. It's not about how much we can donate. It's not about that. It's about holding the government accountable. The United States government is... Um, very influential in the Nigerian government. I know there's a lot of money the Nigerian government collects from the United States government. We're here to beg you to hold them accountable. Ask them what that money is being used for. A few months ago, the governor of, um, a few years ago, our governor, the Kaduna state governor, said he found this Fulani militia and paid them money to stop kidnapping. That's ridiculous. So if he knows who they are, why are they not in prison? Why are there are people, the ones still in prison? My dad and the other elders spent, my dad spent 103 days in prison. These are the elders of a community. Our youth, every time there's an attack, they come the next day, pack any youth they see on the streets, Adara youth. There is no Fulani man arrested for killing Adara people. There is no statistic from the government of any Adara person being killed or the Adara people homeless or the Adara people who need help. It's like we don't exist anymore. Stephen Kefferson is a journalist who tried to speak out for the Adara people. Right now, he's in prison for inciting um, violence through his post, saying the truth. We are not allowed to tell people that, look, I'm sleeping at home. You came to kill me. I'm crying out. We're not allowed to do that. So please, we're begging. We are here to ask that at least let our story be heard. Let it be known what is happening to the Adara people. The case is in court, but honestly, the judicial system is under the government. We, as the children of the Adara elders, tried to bring out official statements and give news people and the media, nobody will take our story. We paid money, nobody will take our story. The media is not allowed to say anything about the Adara people. So we're here to beg people, beg you, beg the, the U.S. government to please wade in into our matter. We want justice for our land. We need our land back. We're 95% Christian Adara. Adara is the largest Christian community in Kaduna State. So we know it won't end at Adara alone. There seems to be a systematic plan to take over Kaduna State 
and Nigeria as a whole. It's purely religious, purely. Let I, I'm, 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 I'm living it. It's, it's not something I read in the newspapers. It's what we're living. If uh, uh, a, a post, you know, there's this federal character in Nigeria where if appointments are given out, it's supposed to be shared equally to people. And right now in Kaduna State, on April 11th, the governor set up an agency to abolish indigenship in Kaduna State. So what does that mean for me? If you're taking away my chiefdom and there's no Adara anymore, and you're saying I'm no longer even an indigenous of Kaduna State, that says a lot. So a Fulani man can come and register as a citizen of Kaduna State and get all the benefits of a citizen while I am a true indigenous of the state and then I get no allocations and I'm not recognized at all. And then on Friday, another bill was passed that government officials were now to regulate the preachers in Kaduna State. It's, it's so unbelievable sometimes. If I wasn't living it, I won't believe it. So a government official is supposed to tell a preacher how to preach and what to say. And the license is to be renewed every year. That tells you that if you don't do what the government says, in a year, you lose your license. So eventually, even in churches, it is only what the government allows you to say that you're allowed to say to the congregation. So at the end of the day, we're just going to be extinct, really, and the government takes over and does whatever they want to do. It's, it's a plan that if it's not curtailed right now, it's going to be terrible for the world at large because there's a genocide going on. Every morning we wake up to different stories. If I start to say stories here, we won't, I, I won't keep quiet. There's so much to say. I'm sorry my stories are all over the place. It's because there's so much for me to say. I'm not even going to start on what we went through when our parents were locked up. We had to go visit our parents in prison every day for over 100 days. And knowing that they didn't do anything wrong. And remember, these elders are in prison while their communities are continuously attacked. And we as the citizens of the indigenous of Adara, where do we go to? Our elders are locked up. People who are speaking for us are being locked up in prison. Then you go to the hospital, people without limbs, children crying, so many orphans right now, no mother, no father, two-month-olds. We don't even know what to do with them. And so, in conclusion, I want to reiterate again that we need help from the U.S. government. Hold the Nigerian government accountable. Ask them what they're doing with the money. Where are they getting money to pay these herdsmen? If you're going to pay herdsmen to stop killing, why don't you just arrest them and put them in prison? So we need them to be held accountable. We need them to allow us freedom of speech. We are not um, in a... In a we're supposed to be in a democratic government and we're not allowed to tell the world or even say at all what is happening to us. It's, it's been a helpless, hopeless situation and God, through all of you, has given us hope. I don't know how I'm not crying right now. I was crying when I was sitting there because I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm in a place where someone will hear my story at all. It's, 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 it's been as if we've been in a, in a dark hole with no lights. But in all of this, God is God. I want to leave, but let me give a testimony. The woman I, I mentioned that who lost her kids was sleeping at home when the Fulani men came. She said there were about 400 of them and they all wore black. So in the morning when they went out, there was just this dark cloud as if it was going to rain. And then they looked up and saw they were surrounded by the Fulani herdsmen with AK-47s. 
So they followed, they ran into her, her, her room and she had four kids and was pregnant, nine months pregnant. And they told the kids in Adara to lie down on the floor. And the kids lay down. There were four of them. And then one in the middle sat up crying when he saw his two other siblings being, their heads being cut off. And she was there just looking at them crying. She said she didn't know what to do. But when they got to the fourth child to slaughter, the Fulani men couldn't find the, the child. And she said God was telling her in the midst of that chaos that he's alive and he's there. They searched everywhere, but they couldn't find the fourth child. And he was sitting right there in front of her. And she was trying to reach out and hold her kid, but she couldn't even. And then when they went out and she ran to her kid to hug him, they came back inside and then they cut off her right, her left hand and tried to sever her head. And then hit her tummy. She started bleeding and passed out. So it was a reverend father that came and rescued her. And by the time she woke up, her nine-month-old baby had died. They had operated on her and removed the child. And her only surviving child is the child that God protected from the Fulani herdsmen. So I want to tell you that we believe in God. We know that God is the reason why we're even here to tell our stories. What we've been through, it's impossible to even stand and talk because it's, it's, it's surreal when you're living in situations like that. So I want to thank everyone here for your time, for listening to us, and continue to beg that something is being done about this. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. My name is Mercy Mesamari. I want to appreciate you for having us here to come here and tell our story. Um, I was a kidnapped victim. We were at home with my mom, and they came, full Annie Hetzman came to our house and kidnapped us. We worked for, for more than 12 hours to their camp. So when, when we got there, we stayed there for 11 days. And on the 10th day, my dad came and paid the ransom. When they actually came to, to get us, they were asking after my dad. So they were specifically asking for him because they wanted him. We don't know why. So after my dad came with the ransom and paid, they still took him to their camp, beat him up before releasing us the next day together. So after the whole kidnapping thing, the government arrested my dad twice on different occasions. He's even he's among the nine elders that were locked up for 105 days over what we know nothing about. They said 66 Fulani were killed. Our people were killed, but nobody said anything about it, not even the media. But they, are, they arrested our elders and locked them up for 105 days without any proof or, or any proof that they did these things. As I stand here, I will tell you that the Kaduna Abuja Road in Kaduna, if you know Kaduna, it is very unsafe. No one travels to Abuja through that road because of the kidnappings going on there. A lot of people have to go back to the train station. When you are traveling to Kaduna, Abuja or to Kaduna, you have to go through the train station because the road is very, very unsafe. A lot of people are kidnapped on a daily basis. Even 
after we were released, a, my neighbor, like not too far from my house, was also kidnapped and kept for days before he was released. These are people that make calls. Even after we were released, they kept calling to know how my dad's health, uh, health was because they really beat him up before releasing us together. So I feel the government can always track these people down and arrest them if they want to because their phones are going through. They make calls. They call us to greet us. And I, I just wonder how they say they can't get these people or arrest them. You find out that the government are trying to negotiate with the kidnappers to pay, to pay them to stop kidnapping people. How? How do they even negotiate when they can always arrest these people? So we are here to beg the U.S. government to please come to our aid. Girls, young girls like Clea Sharibu and others are kidnapped almost on a daily basis. They kidnap you, they, they do whatever, they, they beat you up, they, they useless you. Some of them would ask us, where is your Jesus? Call your Jesus to come and save you. So we are here to beg the U.S. government to please come to our aid. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my name is Stephen Anada. Executive Director, International Committee on Nigeria, in short, ICON. Um, I know for sure that Boko Haram has committed genocide in Nigeria. And Fulani attacks is becoming genocidal. We have all kinds of attacks in Nigeria economic attacks, religious attacks, ethnic attacks, territorial attacks. But we have two strands that must be addressed. Fulani militants and Boko Haram, in short. Leah Sharibu is in captivity. Now, when you talk about Fulani militant attacks in Nigeria, then you begin to look at the story in 2013 and 2016 of Fulani attacks in Benue State. Benue State was decimated and is still being decimated, and there is government inaction. We have here today with us Napoleon Adamu, who was directly a victim. And he is here today representing victims in Agatu community in Benue State, Nigeria. He's here today to share because you will remember in 2016 where helicopters supplied arms to Fulani militants to attack communities in Benue State. We approached ECOWAS court on that and we got a judgment. But when you have government of impunity in Nigeria, how do you get justice? Because they don't respect court orders. To that end, I'll bring to this podium Napoleon Adamu, as he's going to appear to our, appeal to our consciences to begin to see reason why Fulani militant attacks in Nigeria must be taken seriously. Thank you, Napoleon. Good afternoon. I bring greetings from the good people of Agatu and indeed Benue State at large. I want to thank God for this uh, privileged opportunity 
think we are like children of uh, providence to be here. We didn't think of it. We didn't dream of it. But God made it a reality. And so I appreciate you. The story that is being told from my colleagues previously and the one I'm about to tell you too, it's not news any longer. The internet has helped and so many people have visited Nigeria, including Agatu, an interior place. All these things are in the net. Or here only physically to just uh, confirm the reality of the situations on ground. I know in 2013, the whole thing started. We in Agatu, the Agatu people who have actually been living or cohabiting with uh, the Fulanis. And what usually happens is, during dry season, we allow them to come and stay. They graze and go back once the rain drops. And they have actually shared that the place is uh, is good for them. The grass is uh, quite nutritious. And I think what they are trying to do is to just take over and not anything else. Uh, I want to also believe that it's also politically motivated. It's not just a matter of hatred because if you see the level of uh, the organized attacks that they on Nagati, you know that it is not an ordinary thing. And the Fulani that uh, come over to Agatu this time is not the traditional Fulani that we used to know. And we know that when the Fulani come, they usually come with their children and their wives. But the ones we have now that come, come in large number and fully armed. And it's not just small arm. We know Fulanis to be carrying always uh, their long knife and stick. But this time they carry AK-47. The government cannot even, uh, coming on Nigeria cannot also buy for their own army. And so it is really alarming. In 2013, we have, I actually have uh, records of all the attacks on each of the, with date and the number of people killed. I have them in my document here. From 2013 to 2016, in Nagatu, we have about 17 attacks, different days. And they don't go back without killing people and burning houses. And they chose to even burn houses because they feel that is uh, more difficult for our people to come back and uh, rebuild. And once they build, they, are, they, they burn, their intention is to override the place and take over. When you don't have a house, how do you go back again to settle? So that is their intention, taking over the land. And in other parts of Benue, or about uh, 29 attacks, Gumazis, where our state governor comes from, and other uh, communities that they just once in a while attack. And I thank God for the governor of Benue State that stood his ground and actually openly, publicly, in a garden, dedicated Benue to God. It was an open thing that was done, that, that Benue belonged to God. I think that is where his trouble started from. And several attacks to uh, ensure that he doesn't come up even the second time that he was uh, seeking re-election, all that also failed because they said he uh, enacted a bill 
and signed into law prohibiting open grazing. And that actually was uh, a thing that was done against their own interest because they know what they know and they are used to is carrying their cows to graze from place to place. And as they do that, they don't leave the farmer's land uh, untouched. And once they do it, they destroy uh, the, the farm lands. And that became a sin for the state governor. But he stood his ground uh, with the support of his uh, uh, legislators, and that bill was signed into law. <coughs> now, there are two people that had this uh, greatest attack. Most of them are homeless. And were people that actually I mean, uh, 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 hard-working farmers and fishermen. But then, we don't have anywhere to go again. And uh, we refuse to actually be camped in IDP. We say we don't want to go anywhere. We prefer to sleep under trees. That is where we belong. But leaving the land for other people to come and take over, we resisted. And the grace of God, we are still there, but we are homeless. And we have no voice. Of all these attacks that I have mentioned, they are there with dates. We have never had the federal government making a statement publicly against all this. And that is our worry. At the federal level, we have all the chief, the positions that you know of authority taken over by them. So we have no voice. And today we are here. It's not a make-believe story. There are things that we have seen, things that we have felt. And because we have this opportunity, we only want to appreciate the government of the U.S. in the first place for the support we've been given to Nigeria. But please, apart from the support, we want to also let you know that it is not everybody that is enjoying what you are giving. And that's apparition. Benue is one. Other states in Nigeria are also going through the same trauma, and we want to plead with all of us seated here, whatever you can do, to help save the situation and salvage this our country, Nigeria. It's a good place to be, but it has been made uncomfortable because there are people who feel that they're more superior than others. They have nowhere to run to. And so when we saw this opportunity, we said, okay, God is about answering our prayers. And I know that there's so much you can do to help salvage the nation. God bless you. Thank you to our panel of witnesses. Um, I'll ask all of you to uh, stay up here while we have uh, remarks from a, a very special guest today. We have uh, Congressman Frank Wolf, former congressman elected um, in 1980 to represent Virginia's 10th district and served for 17 terms. Uh, he announced in December 2013 that he would leave the House of Representatives uh, at the end of the 113th Congress, to focus exclusively on human rights and religious freedom, 
In January 2015, Wolf was appointed the first ever Wilson Chair in Religious Freedom at Baylor University. That same month, he joined the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative um, and has uh, and has served there well until the end of this past year. Wolf is the author of the International Religious Freedom Act, which infused America's first freedom, religious freedom, into U.S. foreign policy um, by creating the International Religious Freedom Office at the State Department, headed by an ambassador at large, currently Ambassador Sam Brownback. It also established um, the first bipartisan independent U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as both a watchdog of repressive regimes and a truth-teller on human rights issues abroad. Wolf founded and served as co-chairman of the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, a bipartisan organization made up of nearly 200 members of Congress who worked together to raise awareness about international human rights issues. He has traveled to Ethiopia, Sudan, Sierra Leone, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda, Nigeria, and other countries in Africa to see firsthand the tremendous suffering due to corrupt governments, war, AIDS, and famine. He led the first congressional delegation to Darfur. He also has worked to call attention to the human rights abuses and religious persecution in the People's Republic of China, Tibet, Romania, Nagorno-Karabakh, Chechnya, Bosnia, Kosovo, East Timor, and the Middle East. We welcome the Honorable Frank R. Wolf. Boko Haram has killed more people than ISIS. And until the idea of genocide began to, in an end of the plains, our government was relatively silent. Boko Haram, and I called an expert before I came, because I wanted to make sure we weren't exaggerating and throwing the word around. <coughs> Boko Haram is guilty of genocide. We have a museum not very far from here saying never again. Go on the global tourism list, the top three dangerous countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Nigeria. I also asked this expert, well, tell me about the Fulani. And I was in Nigeria when the Agatu attack took place. They had helicopters. Helicopters. They were on motorized boats. I remember five years ago when the Chabak girls were kidnapped. We had hashtag, bring back our girls. I looked this past April. Five years. I have four daughters. Five years ago, no one this past April said a word. Leah, you know, in the Bible, Peter denies Christ three times. Here's a 14-year-old Christian girl who would not deny Christ. The church in the West... We have an obligation in the church in the West to speak out. Secondly, this administration, career and non-career, and the Congress ought to be engaged. 
I also asked the person, what about the Fulanis? They said, with regard to the Fulani, the activity of the Fulanis, he said, is genocidal. So for you, anybody in the government, anybody in Congress, how can we as a nation stand by and allow what is taking place in Iraq and not uh, not to speak out? We should do everything we can to bring the Chabot girls back and almost 50% are still not back and do everything we can that Leah, Leah comes back. We have a moral obligation. We cannot stand by and allow genocide and genocidal activities to take place, and we become very, very complacent and say this is just a question of herdsman and, and farmer. Thank you once again, Congressman Frank Wolf. Um, the next person I'm bringing to this podium uh, said something to me a long time ago when we were discussing Nigeria issues. He says, Stephen, there is no decency in comparing our debt with their debt. Because this is moral equivalent story that is flying all over the world about Nigeria, making people not to take action or speak to it. We are saying if there is debt in Zamfara State, if a Muslim is killed or a Christian is killed, any brutal debt by these armed terrorists should be condemned and perpetrators should be brought to justice. We are not here to aggregate deaths in Nigeria that it is uh, one million Christian, one million Muslims. To this end, Dr. Richard Ikebe is professor of media and communication in Pan-Atlantic University, Lagos, Nigeria. He has his uh, first and second degree here in the United States in the state of Wisconsin and that of uh, Ohio. And uh, he has his PhD in political communication, investor of Westminster, United Kingdom. Please, it is my privilege and honor to bring you to this podium. And also, before I leave this podium, he is also president of International Organization for Peace Building and Social Justice, when he's engaging Nigerians on peace activism, not violence. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Anada. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, let me thank um, Heritage Foundation for giving us this opportunity to speak and uh, save the persecuted Christian. Thank you very much. International Committee on Nigeria for putting this together and bringing us together to hear these testimonies. And you, you wonder why, why, why is this necessary? It is necessary because everywhere I go to, the question I'm asked is, where is the evidence? They ask, they say, give us real evidence. And I suspect, both in Europe and here, that people are looking for evidence, hoping that we can't provide any, 
so that they will be free from taking action. So people demand for evidence. When everywhere I have gone to, every index of violence across the world, just as Congressman Wolf said a moment ago, everywhere there are three countries in the world that are leading in violent activities. Nigeria is the third and probably has overtaken others. I therefore doubt if there's anybody here in the room. I understand there's some people from the Nigerian embassy here. I want to ask them if they are here. Is it well with Nigeria? Is it well with Nigeria? There is violence in virtually every state of the country, and it's getting worse. We're not crying wolf. We're not trying to incriminate people. We're not telling lies against some people. We didn't say this 15 years ago. So something must have happened. The question is, what happened? And I can tell you that Boko Haram happened. And when Boko Haram came on board, they said very plainly to us, that their leading ideology is that they reject Christianity and they reject Western values. It was plainly stated, it was repeated several times. There was no doubt about what they stood for. So they came out as a religious group that was opposed to Christianity in Nigeria. Now, the narrative moved from Boko Haram to Fulani headsmen. And Fulani headsmen are ravaging everywhere in the country as we speak. Now, the, the Fulani headsmen themselves have not denied that they are doing what they are doing. They have a group called Meiti Allah that speaks for them. You can, you can Google them and find out what they themselves are saying about their own activities. They're not in doubt about their mission and what they are doing. Now, <laughs> what has happened recently, because when, uh, I think it was Mercy that was speaking, she said that the Kaduna-Abuja road is no longer safe. There are several highways in Nigeria that are no longer safe. And the reason they are no longer safe is that they are banditry and there is kidnapping everywhere. So if you follow my what I'm telling you now, we have moved from Boko Haram, which was clearly a religious-influenced uh, uh, and religious-inspired organization, to Fulani headsmen that is driven by both religion, ethnicity, land grabbing, and several other factors, to now banditry. Very soon, those who were asking for evidence before 
will now have reason not to intervene at all. And what will they tell you? They will say, oh, it's not religion. It's not ethnicity. It's banditry. So it's a deliberate confusion of narrative. And that has been very successfully used in the international uh, on international platforms. People tell you, oh, they're just chemists. It's just farmers and herders. Um, it's just, and I can tell you, it's all of that. It is religious. Please believe it. What is happening in Nigeria is religious. Otherwise, the Fulani and the Boko Haram people would not have said it's religious. They said it is religious. Secondly, it is ethnic. I don't want to go into the historical factors that are behind the ethnic thing. It is land grabbing. What is happening to the Adara people is that they are just being gradually dispossessed. In, in, in Plateau State, I'm told that there are 70 communities that have been eradicated and repopulated by Fulani headsmen. So it is, it is, it is religious, it is economic, it is transnational, and, and you can, it's like the story of the elephant and the six blind men. But I want to plead with you. Don't wait. If you are in a position to say something, uh, do something, don't wait till another person dies. Don't wait till another community is eradicated. Don't wait if you can write your congressman, if you, if you, I, I see some people with cameras, if you can, if you can say something, you can organize a small community to say, let's do something about Nigeria. I believe that all of us in this room are capable of doing something that is proactive, that can help. You must ask yourself, <clears throat> why do people in tears come to the United States? Why do people who are aggrieved, why are your borders clogged with people who are dispossessed? Because all over the world, people know that the Americans are people who still have a conscience. The people who why why don't why don't some of these Syrians go to Saudi Arabia? Because they know that there are God fearing people here, people who love, who genuinely love, people who care, who genuinely care. The ladies that are here and us who came in from Nigeria, we do this at the risk of our lives. Uh, but we know we know the implication. And as she said, we're not asking for arms. We're not asking for money. We're just asking you to speak out on our behalf. Plead with your government. The other day, our president came here. And I think it was at the Rose Garden, your president 
made a very simple statement, very simple statement. For months after, there was a lull in the killing. You have done it before. Anybody who tells me that the American system does not know what's going on in Nigeria is not telling me the truth. You don't even need to physically come to Nigeria to know what's going on there. People are dying. I have my own stories, but because the powerful testimonies of these ladies is so, is so powerful, I don't want to repeat some of the things that I know. The young boy, Philip, Philip was sleeping in Joss, sleeping in the couch in the father's parlor. Some men came and butchered him. They left him for dead. Today, Philip is, four-year-old Philip is an invalid, can't, can't feed himself. His left arm, he can't use it. He, can't, he can no longer go to school because he can't reason at the level of his classmates as he used to anymore. So the teacher said, we don't have time to teach him specially. I can tell you the story of Blessing. Blessing came home on holidays from school. And she was attacked, herself and her family. Her family was attacked. Twelve people were killed in her home alone that night. Her father is now a mental case because he wasn't home when the attack took place. I can tell you the story of Mama. Mama was in her house. Her husband was killed. Her uh, daughter-in-law was killed. Her son had been killed a few months earlier. And so she started pleading with the men who came to kill her people. Please kill me also. She was following them from house to house as they were butchering people. She was begging them to kill him, to kill her. They refused. And they refused, the reason they refused was that, listen, we need somebody to mourn the dead. So you go and mourn them. Still, she refused. When they finished, she started following them into the bush. They turned around, looked at her in the eyes, and said, Mama, please go home. If you want to die, we will kill you. But we will kill you slowly. And your death will be worse than those of the others. If you doubt me, <clears throat> please buy a plane ticket and come to Nigeria. I'll take you to her. She's still alive. Blessing is alive. Philip is alive. Blessing's father, who has lost his mind partially, is alive. Listen, there is evidence everywhere. These are evidence. Today is Tuesday, isn't it? I should be teaching a class back at home, but I'm here. Because I believe that there's something that the U.S. can do. I believe it strongly. I can't find any other country 
that will stand up for justice, that will stand up, stand up for the way you have always stood up for the oppressed. Please, don't disappoint the people of Nigeria. Please, don't disappoint the people of West Africa. Please, don't disappoint the people of Africa. And please, don't disappoint yourselves. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the biggest thanks obviously goes to our panelists here. I know um, it's, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is to uh, discuss these issues and, and recount them. And um, so truly thank you for, for coming, for sharing. Um, and uh, there's obviously a lot for, for those of us here in the audience to, to ponder and, um, I think it's clear that uh, the depth of, of division in Nigeria um, is, is shocking and perhaps even a generational challenge um, and that it will, will require um, Americans and, and many other countries, I don't doubt, uh, to, to come alongside of Nigerians who are trying to bring uh, peace and reconciliation inside their country uh, across religions, across ethnicities, across social classes, um, all of these divisions that that um, have led to, to so much suffering. So um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, I'm not in a particularly festive mood, but we do have a, a reception um, uh, with just some light hors d'oeuvres that we'd, we'd love to, to see you all at. Um, and uh, once again, do please join me in, in thanking our, our panelists for coming here and our, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. And um, we genuinely appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you.